This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Again, in my actual life, having those relative experiences enables me to touch into the absolute in the midst of daily life. And that's especially true with, with I would call it, the kind of dharmic use of psychedelics. So obviously the experience itself, especially if it's a long experience, um, has its own teaching. And also, you know, it's possible to train the mind to remember Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, your host and monologist. And on behalf of all of us at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon, we sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are grateful that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, David Nickturn, discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And for this episode, we are very fortunate to have the very accomplished polymath rabbi Dr. J. Michelson joining us. J. Michelson works at the intersection of politics, law, and contemplative practice. A journalist, meditation teacher, and professor, Jay is the author of 10 books and over 300 articles. Given our esteemed guest's background, the conversation on this episode is far-ranging and deep. So prepare yourself to dive into discussion touching on a broad range of important topics through the lens of spiritual practice. And speaking of meditation practice, before we get into the episode, we would like to encourage everyone to head over to dharmamoon.com and check out the offerings we currently have up on our website. We are very excited to share. We have Sharon Salzberg in conversation with Ethan Nickturn on December 19th, 2023 on Zoom for a conversation entitled Finding Stability in an Unstable World, Why Buddhist Teachings are More Relevant Than Ever. And given the current state of the world and human relations, it's an important topic with two great teachers. Uh, The gathering will also discuss Ethan's year-long Buddhist studies program, which runs in a number of chunks throughout the year, and you can always hop into a cohort if you are interested in the program. And as always, the third Sunday of every month is our community sit, and we run uh, 100-hour mindfulness meditation teacher programs all year. So regardless when you're listening to this, if you are interested in connecting with mindful community, please head over to dharmamoon.com. Also, we'd like to thank Be Here Now Network for hosting and distributing our humble podcast. 
Big shout out to everyone there. And we encourage all of our listeners to head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com to check out the ever-growing archive of podcasts sharing and discussing our world's wisdom traditions and carrying on Ram Dass's legacy. Okay, so now I have the unenviable position of giving some background on our most prodigious guests to date. And then we'll get right to the conversation. Jay Michelson's work transcends the ability of the short or medium-length bio to transmit a sense of his activities and who he is. On his website, there are four different short bios that are context-specific. After some contemplation, I think a good way to start his introduction is simply to read the titles of these bios. Bio number one, focusing on LGBTQ activism, legal work, and religious exemptions. Bio number two, focusing on the gate of tears. Jay is a prolific author. Bio number three, focusing on Buddhism and meditation. And bio number four, focusing on Jewish writing, teaching, and leadership. Highlights from his longer bio include Jay is a contributing writer to New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, and other publications where he most frequently writes about the Supreme Court, religion, LGBTQ issues, and climate change. He has appeared on NPR, CNN, and MSNBC. Jay is also a teacher, podcast host, and editor at 10% Happier. He's written several books about meditation and spirituality, including The Gate of Tears, Sadness and the Spiritual Path, and Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment. He is also a non-denominational rabbi and frequently writes and teaches about Jewish theology and mysticism. Finally, Jay is an affiliated assistant professor at Chicago Theological Seminary and a visiting fellow at the Center for LGBTQ and Gender Studies and Religion. And if you're interested in learning more about Jay and his work, head over to jmichelson.net. You can also follow him on Instagram, where his handle is jmichelson on Insta. And we would like to conclude this intro by wholeheartedly recommending his upcoming book, The Secret That Is Not a Secret, his first book of fiction. It is a collection of interconnected short stories whose inhabitants are torn between the transcendent and the earthly. You can pre-order it now through links on his website for its release on December 5th, 2023. Okay, friends, that's our opening monologue. And now on to the main event, episode number 48 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with Jay Michelson. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. Uh, Highly qualified to uh, illuminate us on all three points in different combinations is uh, Jay Michelson, who I'm meeting just for the first time, but very happy to be. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I thought just by sharing uh, a little bit about, I was going to say that the word eclectic in the dictionary has your picture in it. Were you, were you aware of that? Uh, it should. I should. We we're talking about making a buck. I should monetize that and uh, get a commission. Okay. Well, I get my usual 85%. That's the deal I have with. Um, oh, good. People. That sounds like yeah. a good music royalty deal. Isn't that what you got for the songwriting? <laughs> I got you it. got your 15? <laughs> yeah, I got it from the music industry. It's like uh, you, they get 85%. You should be glad they're even talking to you. Um, but I'm going to just read a little bit about what, what, how you summed up your, uh, your world. Um, and then maybe um, we could launch from there, see what you want to talk about from within there. 
So I like the way you start. I've struggled with this intersection my entire life. If not struggled, then worked with it in weird ways. And here's the, here's the thing that our audience coming from different directions would want to know. My jobs have included journalist, spiritual book writer, LGBTQ activist for 10 years, meditation app content editor, podcast host for four years. Now, this, this is where I dropped the mic. Rabbi, I like the placement of that. It's very good. Rabbi, <laughs> professor, and law professor, fiction book writer, lawyer, law clerk, startup founder in 2000, stayed through 2007, indie online magazine founder editor, and I've had financial services side hustle for the last year as well. Now, here's where, just in case anybody's starting to schnooze, not to mention the PhD, JD, rabbinic ordination, Dharma teacher transmission, MFA, three albums, 10 books. Um, I say this not to brag in any way, but to confess as the both and ness of my life is both a blessing and a curse. So uh, maybe, maybe that's uh, an, an interesting uh that's like driving a truck through the defensive line of the, you know, of the <laughs> New York Jets, and then you go wherever you want to go from there. So, please, what you, are those could, you could drive a unicycle through the defensive line of the New York Jets. Also, I'm very <laughs> proud that I just made a, an accurate football reference. That's not my <laughs> usual swim lane. <laughs> a unicycle through the defensive line—that's good. And then, as a songwriter, I'm starting to work on that. I live right like away. five miles from uh, what's now MetLife Stadium, Giant Stadium, where the Jets play. So wow. I feel particularly qualified to say things about the Jets, even though I haven't watched a football game in four years. <laughs> Does the football ever come crashing through your window of your living room? And- uh, once they allow more steroid use, I heard that it, it will. Yeah, it'll fly right into, into sunny Montclair. Montclair, sunny Montclair. That's a good title for a song right there. Sunny Sun's Montclair. Sun's coming through the window right now. I should remember yeah. which uh, place to record podcast episodes in the afternoon. <laughs> well, Montclair is a nice place to live. Um, I think is would you would you say are you from yeah there? I I grew up in the suburbs and I hated them and swore I would never ever ever live in the suburbs but like a lot of people you know I had a kid living in the city and um, you know I'm friends with your son so I know you know I know the struggle of uh, you know kids in the city and we just decided to do it and I I actually really love it out here it's a little liberal bubble in the center of New Jersey or the north of right. New Jersey right yeah I mean that's interesting you ended up back where you started. Um, there's a lot of poetry in that. And and um, what about Brooklyn? Did you consider Brooklyn? No, we lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn for 15 years, but we were right. priced out. Uh, there's just uh, no way. Well, if mm. we wanted to be in a, a, a decent public school district, uh, you know, the, the prices were just, yeah, no, I want the life of living in Park Slope in 1985, where you could buy a brownstone on a meditation teacher's salary, you yeah. know, and uh, go to the pavilion and watch movies all the time. Basically, the movie The Squid and the Whale was the life that I wanted, but it hasn't been economically accessible for 20 years. Yeah, you know, when you said that, it made me think I was living in in Soho uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. I wish I'd bought every building then. You must have had some cool neighbors, though. Not yeah, to you encourage know, you to drop names, but that must have No, but there were a lot of artists and, and, and cool musicians and stuff, but living in what you would then, you know, the bathtub would be in the in the living room of the uh, of, of the loft. Right. And those buildings, like, just, uh, you know, you could have bought them for a couple of hundred grand each back then. I'm sure somebody All did. Right, let's change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so um, of those of those myriad uh, accomplishments, and let's call it like it is, that's a lot of accomplishment, Jay. 
I'm just like a broke version of Elon Musk. You know how he like does 20 different things and makes a billion dollars. I tried 20 different things and didn't make any money. Well, okay. You did not make any money because you're not not walking around the streets. No, that's right. Yeah, no, I just didn't do it. I mean, I think, like I said in that email, which I didn't know you were going to read, the, uh, the, it's, every so often I pondered doing a version of your book. You know, because I've had this like multi-career polymath life and mm-hmm. I can spin it in a way that I think is compelling. And to be honest, just in the last year, you know, I've started a new newsletter and I'm doing a lot of work specifically at like some of the intersections of those different fields that you right. mentioned. Yeah. So there's ways to spin it. And I think I feel very good about some of the work that I've been doing recently. And yet it's also a kind of been a kind of career suicide. Um, in Silicon Valley talk, <laughs> I optimized for seizing the day. You know, I saw the movie mm-hmm. Dead Poets mm-hmm. Society when I was sure. 18 and and yeah. I, you know, I read a lot of Allen Ginsberg and I just, you know, mm-hmm. I was convinced like this is what I wanted. I wanted, you know, I'm yeah. also an Enneagram 7 for people who follow that. So, you know, I want every possible experience that there is, even the, de- even the bad ones. I just, yeah. you know, want every experience. And I became a parent because I'm an Enneagram 7. I wanted that experience. And... You know, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely can look back on the first half century of my life and say, really, with uh, joy and confidence, I did. I seized the day. You know, I didn't even include the things I, like, you know, I, too, I was in a garage rock band in the early t- 2000s. And I, you know, I've done I've done I've been to Burning Man 14 times like there's stuff that didn't even make it on that list. But when I quote again, I use this language tongue-in-cheek, the optimizing Silicon Valley language. But optimizing for seize the day is not the same as optimizing for a certain kind of credibility and and um, status in any one individual career. So sure. I've just lived with that. And I think yeah. it's, it's, in a way, I'm, you know, a good guest for you, in a way, a terrible guest, because it's, it's kind of like I, I didn't follow the advice that one would want to follow if you wanted to get, you know, that tenured professorship and uh, or that, you know, plum position in X or Y career. Um, that being said, I do. I, there are many times in my work life where I've had either all, let's say, law, politics, etc., or all spirituality, meditation, etc., or uh, some, you know, and it it's it's not, it doesn't feel great. I love the balance and I love the mix of these different worlds and code switching between them. Um, you know, speaking in meditation voice in the meditation hall and then speaking in CNN voice when I'm on CNN. And and that I find really nourishing for better or for worse. Well, you know, one of the chapters in the book says defining success on your own terms uh, is important. So um, do you feel that your version of success is to is to be eclectic and to um Carp the diem, as you would say. Yeah. You <laughs> it made it sound like a filter fish. Yeah, I think um, uh, there's, there, all right, that's good. I don't know if you're going to edit out the laughing, but that's, I hope you keep it in. Uh, oh, no, we don't edit out the laughing here. No way. Um, I think there's, I think I've had, and I thought about this a lot, actually. You know, there seem to me different vectors by which I, 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 evaluate a life well lived for myself. Obviously, I'm not here to judge anybody else's uh, vectors. You know, one of them uh, is honestly my my books and my legacy. I feel really good about the books that I've written. Uh, number Book number 10 is coming out 
uh, in December of 2023, uh, probably in the rearview mirror when folks hear this. And um, I feel great about that, even though they're not bestsellers. You know, my dream is that, you know, after I'm gone, some someone, some young person maybe will find it in, in some university library and it'll resonate with them. It's not like making a large mark. I mean, I wouldn't mind writing a bestseller, but it, but you wouldn't write books about non-dual spirituality if you if you want a bestseller. So I feel really good about that. There's a lot of our integrity in that in that work. Uh, and my this most recent book is a collection of short stories, so it feels great to have fiction my fiction out there. You know, obviously, I think one of the main vectors is about love and connection, um, and I feel really when I reflect on that, I feel a lot of gratitude. Uh, mm. And another vector is making an impact. And I've definitely felt as though, you know, in almost all of the work that I've done, there's been that eye toward, uh, you know, whether it's the Bodhisattva vow or just trying to leave the world a little better. Um, and that and obviously Jay, that motivated, have you taken yeah. have you taken the Bodhisattva vow in, and in what tradition have you? No, taken? Jews are afraid of vows. And uh, as a as a did you know, <laughs> nobody a, told me that. Oh yeah, no. There's even a prayer uh, Yom Kippur every day, the hol- every year, the hol- holiest day in the Jewish calendar, annulling any vows that you might have taken. No. Uh, yeah, it came along. It came earlier, but it became popular in the time of forced conversions when Jews were being forced to convert to Christianity. And although, again, this formula, this legal formula, had existed beforehand, it became very widespread. And now, you know, in like the jazz singer where he sings Kol Nidre, as he sings that, that's the annulling of vows. It's funny because that tune is very moving and the language is legalistic. It's, it's literally like a legal absolution wow. for many vows that you'd taken. You'd taken. So no, I haven't, I, I come through the insight tradition. Uh, I'm authorized to teach in um, uh, Venerable Ayakima's tradition, which is a Sri Lankan, uh, you know, kind of Theravadan tradition. I teach Jhana, Lee Brasington was my teacher. And I'm also, I got ordained as a rabbi by my Jewish meditation teacher, uh, Rabbi David Cooper of Blessed Memory. Uh, he and his wife were my first Jewish meditation teachers. So that's, how those did, are how the did lineages. Jews meditate? What's that? How did Jews meditate? Nobody ever told me about that when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not quite what you get in, in Sunday school. Um, in different ways. You know, there are, uh, I'm using this word advisedly also like indigenous Jewish meditation practices. And it's advised both because, you know, I don't know if that word applies, but also all Jewish contemplative practices touch other ones, right? They were influenced either by Sufism uh, or by a- ancient Babylonian contemplative techniques. <laughs> so they're in the Bible, they're in the Talmud, they're in later literature, and, and they really flower in the 19th century in the Hasidic movement. But they're all influenced by other things. But then in the last you know, 50 years or so, and I've written a lot about this actually in my work, the, a lot of what's now Jewish meditation is kind of a fusion of mindfulness uh, and, and Jewish practices. Uh-huh. So in actually, um, when we're finished, I'm teaching a course for uh, an online course for a place called the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's actually on the Buddhist Jewish intersection. And that institute, which has done amazing work, uh, yeah, has has kind of a working definition of Jewish mindfulness. So that's how that's how Jews meditate. It also sounds like a great setup for a joke. You, you can Jewish Jewish There's mindfulness. A couple of great books of uh, I think it's called Zen Judaism. Yeah. So I'll uh, give you one. I don't know if you've read them all, but you know, so in Zen, you want to divest yourself of all you know, all notions of the self, even of reality, form, emptiness. So what do you have left? Upkis. Just the Yiddish word for nothing. <laughs> but it's a great Yiddish word that's hard to translate because it means nothing, but like, I got nothing. Yeah. It's like is a very the, specific. Is that the Bubka Sutra? 
Oh, man, you should make a career of this. We could just tell jokes the whole time. Uh, if it was up to me, I would. And my favorite people are comedians, actually. Uh, <laughs> That's a Wittgenstein teaching. You know, that, that he, he imagined, if it, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein imagined a religion composed entirely of jokes. Oof, it, it depends who's telling them and who's the brunt, the brunt taking the brunt of it. Yeah, really. not the like nasty racist jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Well, humor is a, a amazing thing. And my teacher, Trungpa used to say, if it isn't funny, if it isn't doesn't have a sense of humor, it's not Buddhism. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard anything like that? Uh, you know, Tarifadans are dry people. <laughs> <laughs> so they that's not really true but it was a good line <laughs> there are a lot of great zen jokes i'm sure you know them oh, of course yeah yeah I mean, I mean i think most koans are really jokes a vajrayana joke i have to think about more i have to con- contemplate what that would look like but um you are you a happy person it depends what you mean by happy. <laughs> Actually, I should have done the Jewish version. You know, Jews answer a question with a question. So I should have yep. said, who's asking? Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, we're recording this in a, in a challenging period of time around mm. the, uh, the Israel and Gaza war. And so, mm. you know, for me to say I'm happy right now in the conventional sense would be not true mm. um, and also would feel kind of gross. Um, I wrote a, a book of mine called The Gate of Tears, Sadness and the Spiritual Path. So that tells you what team I'm on. But that book ultimately is about joy. There's actually, Mm. this is a good little teaching to give over. There's a a Hasidic, a Jewish teaching that comes, it's a a verse, but it gets amplified that it's a great commandment or it's a great merit, I think you should do, um, to be happy always. And on the face of it, this is an obscene teaching, right? To be happy, happy in war, happy in cancer wards, happy in the cemetery. It doesn't make sense on a conventional understanding of happiness. It correlates exactly with the Lojong slogan. Mm, what's the slogan? Always, re- always rely on a joyful state of mind. Right. So I think yeah. that's the key is that it's joyful in that sense, as, as I understand the slogan, is not I'm just thinking happy thoughts or I'm, I'm right. you know, giddy with happiness. It's a joy that does, it's the happiness that does not depend on conditions, right? It's the happiness of relinquishment, of letting go. Right. That That is, the, you know, the one thing that is maybe not conditioned. And that in that sense, I would describe myself as happy. Yes. Right. Um, so that's why well, the Jewish well, joke of who's asking like is really yeah. the right answer. It depends on a conventional level of happiness. Definitely no. And you know, I've, I've struggled yeah. with that at times in my life, but I do think that my spiritual practice has, has enabled a deeper kind of happiness. So what would you mean by unconditional, let's say, or free from con- cause and conditions? Which is, yeah, you know, I didn't mean to step in, in, step in the philosophy hole. Yeah, yeah, I was just using it as a synonym for nibbana, for nirvana, the the, the yeah. endless, undefinable letting go, which may or may not have something to do with the radiant, already awakened nature of mind itself. Um, and I'm of a I'm a Theravadan, but I dabble in. I'm a Dzogchen dabbler, uh, and There's not a just lot dabbler. Of, a lot of Dzogchen Theravadans around these days. Yeah, there say. are. It's because we're yeah. so dry without it. It's like, yeah. what do I got this? I'm free from defilements. That's it. You know, yeah. it's like, not a, so <laughs> that's, that has um, both the Dzogchen teachings and the non-dual Jewish teachings more align with that 
view than with, let's say, a more, a more Theravadan or, or Hinayana right. Buddhist view uh, has been very nourishing for me. And it also aligns with um, some insights that one can get on psychedelics, which has been a kind of an area of work for me in the last few years. I now have a, you can add to the pile of resume items. I'm a, a field scholar at the Emory Center for Psychedelics and Spirituality. And, you know, really trying to look at that intersection with more diligence and seriousness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- so are you um, licensed to administer those? Uh, I'm not. Yeah, no, my role in that center, so I have a PhD in, in Jewish thought, but in, in really in religious studies. And there's amazing, exciting work happening in that field. It's also not necessarily informed by a lot of religious studies scholarship and how we understand diverse religious traditions and the multiplicity of mystical experiences, for example, mm. and how, you know, the Emory Center is, is also very, very concerned with, uh, with standards of care. So people have these powerful psychedelic experiences, which we might see as positive, but which they might experience as a profound spiritual crisis. Uh, and mm. there's not a lot of protocols yet for how to really work with that uh, in different traditions that people might be coming from. Um, and in being a little bit more sensitive and attentive and attentive to how we describe the plurality of psychedelic experiences and the plurality of mystical and spiritual experiences. So and that is like cases, a really fun new area for me. And yeah. Hmm. yeah. In both cases, the notion of breaking through some kind of, like, I guess, dark night of the soul or. <clears throat> you know, uh, going through some kind of challenging experience to achieve any level of realization. Is it, would you hold that view that that's necessary? Somebody who's going to have to face that at some point rather than just skip their way into... It's heaven. been my experience. It's been the experience <laughs> of every teacher I know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even what, again, what what you or I, I don't know, what I might consider a, a part of the peak experience could be inter- mm. could be experienced as a crisis. So you see, let's mm. say, that the myths of your religious tradition, so I'm obviously poly-religious, poly-multipath, but suppose I'm not that. Suppose I'm a more conservative Christian and I receive some sort of psychedelics in a medical environment and I see that the myths that my tradition holds dear are only one of many and that everything is really, there's mul- many forms of the divine. I would regard that, Jay would regard that as great, right? But somebody in that position might be profoundly disturbed. And there are really wonderful accounts already in the literature of people saying things like that. Having, so even, so the dark night, right? But also even the light after the dark night uh, can be really challenging uh, for folks depending on their tradi- on their religious backgrounds and, and what myths they hold dear. So what's exciting about this whole field is like there is this initial phase of enthusiasm. I think we're maybe a little after that, but we're still at this very early stage of researchers and others doing some really good work. There's really great work happening in the Dharma community uh, and, in the, and, and in the Jewish community and, and in several Christian communities. And so it's an exciting new, I felt like, I, you know, that list you gave was not full enough. So I wanted to add some more diverse, seemingly unrelated activities to the pile. <laughs> Well, seemingly being the active in yeah, it's there. related. That one's related. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you ever think? What will where and what will I be in five years? You think like that at all? Like, where it's, am I going? It's funny. I think around. So I'm 52 now. I think when I was around 40, I realized that like everybody but me seemed to be thinking that way. <laughs> <laughs> and, but not even five, 20, you know, so I went to, I went to law school and I went to Yale law school, right? So filled with like lots of overachievers. One current U S Senator was in a class, one below me, many famous law professors. 
And I did, you know, they were thinking 20 years ahead, right? And, you know, where do you want to, where do I want to be? They were thinking at 25, you know, where do I want to be at 50? And for me at that point in my life, you know, I was, I was in the closet at that point and I was cut off, not just from my like romantic or sexual desires, but from any desire, from any understanding of myself in the world. It like my whole life seemed to be happening to somebody else. And I was just cut off. I think folks might not, people have diverse experiences of the closet and some people don't have any experience of it in the queer community. But for me, you know, there was really this, I just couldn't envision myself in 10 years. You know, everything about that seemed to be somebody else's life. Like I'd be married to a woman with children and I'd be living this life. Like none of that seemed to make any sense. Um, And then, you know, I came out a little bit late. I was 29, 30 years old. And then there was this whole period of exploration. My 30s were just this wonderful opening of spiritual and sexual exploration that I, and sensual exploration. That's when I started going to Burning Man those 14 times, uh, almost every year in my, in my thirties. And, you know, I'm really grateful that I had those years. A lot of people have them in their twenties, but you know, I still had those. And, and, um, it was only a little bit later that I could start to even think about your question. Now I do think about it. I have a, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter and, and, you know, we're, I'm in a different phase of life now where, yeah, I mean, I'm financially planning for five to 15, 20 years from now, let alone uh, just envisioning it. But early, but even now, I think the degree to which the financial planning is pretty solid, actually, but the degree to which like exactly where I'll be in my work, it's hard to go beyond five years out, whereas I know a lot of people do. If you took all the projects you're working on now, would one arise Phoenix-like to the top of the pile? Is there something that you're invested in now that you're doing that is like, you know, has more weight for you personally? So my immediate answer is like, oh, if I didn't have to think about money, you know, I just write all the time. And I love my books and I love my journalistic writing. Um, And, uh, you know, that's like the immediate answer. And yet, even as I say that, I'm mindful of something I said about 10 minutes ago that there are just, I'm happiest when there's a balance in, uh, or in my, my work life of these different activities. So, you know, if I were just writing, I think I would miss the connection, the Dharma connection. So, you know, I'm on the leadership team of New York Insight, the New York Insight Meditation Center, and, and there's a three person leadership team. I'm one of those people. And, you know, I love that. I love being able, I love it in a certain way, even more than teaching, um, mm. because I kind of be, get, get to be the DJ of a lot of different teachers, diverse teachers who can speak to people from different backgrounds, diverse in every way, uh, tradition as well as background. And that's really exciting and fun uh, to do. And I did some of that at 10% Happier uh, for a while too, where I was kind of curating a section of of short mini Dharma talks, like five to 10 minute mini Dharma talks. And there are some talks that I can't give, you know, or not, not with any integrity. And, and so it's, I do love that piece. Um, and yet when I'm only doing that work, I get really itchy. Um, the creative side isn't quite as nourished and also the activist side. You know, I, I feel like there's a place in the world both for, I see meditation as kind of a, one of many forms of long-term activism, like really trying to see if we can get inside the human mind and help us be a little gentler to each other maybe in some way. But it's there's also for me a real pull to short-term activism, to finding suffering and and working to lessen it in in the the world as we find it. And in that zone, like just who who do you feel are the most important teachers in the world right now 
within that zone. In that exact overlap zone, like the oh, engaged the Buddhist. Buddhist. No, not engaged, but just Buddhist, you know, like, uh, well, whether it's engaged or not, maybe that's an important element of it for you. But like, uh, is there anybody that you look at and go like, that is, uh, that the work that person is doing is extremely important and relevant for, for a wide swath at the moment? Like, who's your I th- hero? I think you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of like whole groups of people like the Zen Peacemakers. You know, maybe maybe Bernie Glassman was one. You know, would have been one of those heroes in that way. Um, but I also think of folks who are working in communities under extreme stress, either with prisoner pop- populations, people who are incarcerated, or with communities that historically haven't had access to meditation. Um, and so, I don't know that there's one. You know, like this is the dude. You know, like I want to be Matthew Ricard, although he's one of those people, right? I think he's he's sitting at this juncture of of Dharma and activism, and and has leveraged a certain degree of fame to do a lot of good. You know, and um, but I don't know. I'm all. I don't know if there's that one. It's a. I'd have to think more about that. But I think there are these there are these groups of folks who are who are doing that, and I, I do think that there is a space. I think we're at a really early phase of integrating Dharmic wisdom with the political world. Um, you know, one of the people doing that is someone who I, I don't really love, which is Marianne Williamson. Um, nothing personal or anything like that. I just like the way she teaches. It's not like my style. I'm not really judging. It's just like for me personally. But, you know, there. Are, but uh, that project is something that I find really appealing. But it's challenging. I think one of the things she struggles with is, you know, her the way she teaches gets seen as sort of, well, that's new age and that's marginal. And so that's weird. And let's not even talk about that. And that's really a shame because a lot of what she's saying about the core, a lot of our core struggles are between a politics of fear and the capacities of the human heart and human mind to love. I actually think that's accurate, but it's so hard to give that over in a way that can be heard by large numbers of people that I almost look to folks who do that within Christian traditions. Obviously, Dr. King is like the you know the paragon of having done that, you know, really calling on our spiritual traditions for justice. Uh, but there are others too. And and it's I don't think anyone's really solved how to do that really effectively. Well, what comes to fairly clearly is the interface between contemplative practice and engaged activism seems to be your sweet spot. Yeah, there's least, something like that. So yeah. yeah, although I also, um, you know, speak that I I I use the phrase code switching before. You know, there's I, it's I like what is that? There's that the cliche render unto oh yeah render unto Caesar what is Caesar and render unto God was God. Jesus said it right. Not a really cliche biblical utterance. Uh, and you know, I I tr- I've been trying just in the last few years, like when I'm on CNN. I was on last night for a segment, you know, trying to bring in the ethical and even, I don't use the word spiritual, but the ethical and spiritual aspects of our, of our political moment. Um, but it's hard to do that, you know, and a lot of what I write on the journalism side might not look very quote unquote spiritual uh, to folks because when it doesn't do that. Um, so it's the interface, but it's almost a juxtaposition as much as an interface. When when Ethan was he went to Brown, my son Ethan, who you know, went to to Brown, and he it was kind of surprising to me. He studied economics, so there was not he was incredibly gifted at math. Mm. He, he was at a very young age; he could do all kinds of equations in his head. 
Um, and I said, well, Heath, if you want to like help the world figure out an economic system that works, uh, that, that has its foundation in some kind of practicality, but also ethical system. So, um, yeah, he didn't really take me that seriously about that challenge. <laughs> but that's but, also but, part of it too. I mean, look, you know, if you look at the polarization right now in our country, the partisan polarization, it's kind of bizarre. If if we were if humans were rational, none of this would be happening, right? But, you know, ten, Republicans tend to be able to speak to a lot of the spiritual and emotional frustrations and malaise that, you know, a lot of especially white Americans feel. Right. And that is real. Right. The way they speak to it, maybe not. <laughs> but that but that feeling and the feeling of loss of status, which might be loss of privilege, but still the feel the experience and it, the economic loss that the middle class has suffered, ironically, is due to the Republican policies of the last half century. And yet it's the Republicans who are having much more success at speaking to those deep uh, aspects of the mind and heart. And so. You know, there are, there are so few, you know, people who are able to speak to those qualities, but with a more, with, a, with an economic program that would actually help, right? So it's like, you know, the, the conservatives are good at like, they do economics that help the elites and rhetoric that speak to the masses. The Democrats are good at, at economics that help the masses of people. But they're not good. But they and they speak to the elites. They don't right. And they're you know I follow Robert Reich, uh, you know former labor secretary on social media. He's very good at it. There are a lot of folks who are good at it. Pete Buttigieg is actually really good at it. Um, but it's it as as a general rule, it's this really frustrating thing. So maybe we should get Ethan a new job, and he can just run for president and be the guy who, even if we don't have the new economic system, it's it's the it's the ability to join the a diagnosis of where America is spiritually and emotionally and culturally with a remedy that would actually work. It's this bizarre situation, I think, for the last, since Reagan, you know, for the last 40 years, where the policies that would actually help uh, economically are being rejected by the people they would help. In addition to the economic piece, there's the leadership hierarchical structure, uh, which I've been totally fascinated in my life, even just building companies, but also at the bigger scale. Uh, you know, what do you have any like um, guiding principles that you would use to apply to a leadership structure, to a government? Like what, what should, what, how should it be structured? I know it's kind of a big question, but I, yeah. that's, I think that way, you know, this isn't really working completely what we have. Uh, no, you don't think? No. But, <laughs> Things uh, seem to be going really well. <laughs> I'm optimistic, basically, but, you know, it seems like there's some glitches in the, you know. Yeah, to put it mildly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not actually an organizational systems guy, um, and I'm aware of that having worked in larger organizations, um, you know, where, which have gone both right and wrong. Uh, you know, in smaller organizations, you know, working at a meditation center, for example, you know, we have a shared leadership model that I think is more appropriate to that kind of small and spiritually minded organization. But it definitely feels as though there is where I where I am focused is on anytime there's an intersection of either psychology or behavioral science or spirituality or religion and the way people vote and think about politics. 
you know, there's a book about 20 years ago called The Political Brain. I think Drew Weston is his name, uh, who's still around. He's actually doing good podcasting work. Just noticing, you know, there was an older book called What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank, which is like, which sort of said what I said before, like, but it had a, almost a almost a little condescending element to it. It's like, why are these dumb people in Kansas voting against their economic interests? Don't they, they're all being hoodwinked by Ronald Reagan or something. Well, that's not quite right. I mean, you know, there's, as, as the political brain shows, there's reasons why people trust leaders and don't trust leaders. And they have very little to do with policy positions. And they're, they're choosing based on a lot of inchoate stuff. And, you know, I think as people on the left scratch our heads about how anybody could vote for Donald Trump, it's worth asking them, <laughs> right? And some of it is a kind of dark cult of personality and and some of it is a kind of white grievance and nihilism, really, like a sense that we've lost America and the we is this, this formerly very privileged white male-centered uh, power apparatus. But part of it is also a kind of real dislocation about globalization and about technology and things that are real and changes in gender norms, uh, you know, that are insufficiently explained or humanized uh, and, you know, plenty of other factors as well. So I'm less, I'm less personally... I feel less qualified to talk about the systems, but more obsessed with um, the brains that come together in those systems. So you tell me, how should we reform? <laughs> well, you know, not to oversimplify it, but you have your top-down kind of structures, right, which uh, can be either autocratic or more principled. And then you have your kind of, you know, flat level uh, systems. I'm sort of leaning towards a, a model, like I'm building a company called Dharma Moon and I deliberately didn't make it a, a, a nonprofit. It's a, it's a, it's a, a public benefit corporation, but it's, mm -hmm. we have to make money to survive. And, and, and I can't just ask people for like donations and gifts. Right. So that's a new model. And it goes with the, the, Creativity, creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. What, what model could we use to create some kind of society, really? I think we're rebuilding society from the inside out right now. That's what I feel. I think that's right. I don't know if I have a more, have a similarly revolutionary vision for society, but I do think that the people in that society are that way. But, you know, back on the, just on thinking about Dharma Moon, you know, so I did work at 10% Happier for several years, and there's sort of a built in structural problem. I think to yoga organizations, or yoga companies, meditation companies, etc., which is an endless dance. Which ten percent, I think, did pretty skillfully. Uh, certainly, you know, while I was there, between you know integrity to the tradition and what people want, right? And we've seen plenty of examples of places that haven't had that level of integrity, right? And but it's always that push pull, right? So if what really helps is deeper work, for example, but people have to be persuaded that that's the case because they don't think that's true. They're like, I'm stressed out and I need to relax. And so, you know, another app that's out there in the world, Calm, has had a, a little bit more success because that's just what they offer, right? They don't offer how to be a better person or how to wake up in your life or how to see through, right? It's just like, here's how to calm down. And I think that's intrinsic to... I don't know, whatever we want to call that space. I hesitate to use the word wellness because that's kind of a gross word now. But uh, but whatever that space is, you know, it's it's because it's very hard to convince people to buy a product that they don't think they need. It's hard enough to convince them to buy a product that they do think they need, right? Like our soap is better than the other soap, but they know they need soap. 
But when we're selling Dharma, and I'm not criticizing, it should be clear, I'm sure there are plenty of people who'd be like, how dare you start a for I'm not, that's not my line at all. Uh, I just, I, I know, I've, I noticed firsthand like this tension between, you know, the consumer wants a short-term fix to their problem and their problem is real. I'm not mocking that, right? They're suffering. And we did some of our best work at 10%, you know, in COVID, right? Where people were really suffering and we could offer a lot of short-term relief and it was enormously fulfilling. And at the same time, you know, I think, I suspect you think that the, the practices that lead to more, that deeper transformation um, aren't those short-term things. And yet convincing folks to do, to spend money on that is, is hard. Yeah, it's, um, of course, uh, I'm sure that it must have happened at 10% happier that somebody made a deal like how about 9 0.5% for you, special special <laughs> offer. Did that not come up? I will say, I think Dan Harris's title, I think was like the most brilliant thing, right? Because precisely, and maybe the opposite of what I just said, but not really. Like if there's, you know, people have this idea of like meditation, like, okay, I'm going to be find my Zen and I'm going to be calm. And if I'm not doing that, I'm doing it wrong. And, you know, Dan's book, which is about number one bestseller, and then the company, you know, and the podcast, was just so smart, I think, about saying, well, would you would you do a lot of work if you could get 10% happier? Like, forget the 100% people. Um, uh, even though Dan is, by the way, personally obsessed with the 100% people, like he's chasing around, like he's like, where are the enlightened people and can I interview them? Uh, which is, is interesting. But, you know, for most folks, and a lot of folks, I think, said yes to that proposition. Like, yeah, all right, I'll give you an hour a day or something if, I, if that makes me 10% less of a jerk. 10% less stressed, 10% kinder, uh, and 10% happier. I just thought that was a stroke of genius. I'm not paid to say that. I don't get 10% of royalties. <laughs> 85% or I'm not in. Um, has he had Matthew Ricard on his show? I think so. Yeah, I think so. He's about certainly Mindy talked Rupert about him a lot. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, Mindy he's one Rupert. of the enlightened ones. He wants, he's, yeah, he has a whole idea that he wants to do this as a project, like go around and meet the enlightened folks. And, um, yeah. but I think, it actually is a bit, it, it leads to the deeper question, which is a fun, profound question, which is, you know, what we mean, what do we mean by enlightenment? And I think it's an interesting also to get in the weeds for a second, because it might be fun for you and me, even if no one else, you know, the, the in the Theravadan slash Hinayana model of enlightenment, I think actually depends on a lot of causes and conditions, you know, including something that looks like monasticism. And you could definitely get 10%, you can get maybe 50%, maybe, maybe even more happier and better and, you know, and enlightened in daily life. But that model and that frame of what enlightenment is requires a lot of conditions and work. And there are other models in the Dharma, you know, the Vajrayana one is one of them that has a different understanding of enlightenment. And so you can walk around and meet lots of enlightened people because there's a different conception of what that means. I once wrote an article too about like what's Jewish enlightenment. I was really interested in that subject. And um, that one has a lot more, it's neither the Theravada model nor as I understand it, the, the, the Vajrayana model, but it's one of, it's not a steady state that seems, because Judaism has hardly any monastic tradition in it whatsoever, only really on the fringes, definitely not anywhere near the mm. center. It's a householder religion. The, you know, the observance of the commandments, which is paramount in traditional Judaism, requires you to be in a family environment and, and a, a householder mm -hmm. life. And so it's much more about being able to access what they would call like expanded mind or God's point of view uh, quickly. 
So and running and returning, going back and forth from our ordinary mind, which they don't denigrate, but which they just say is one way of seeing. And this other way of seeing where everything is God and everything is one. And we can see from that perspective and live in that embodied in that way and then go back um, because yeah. you can't live in that way in their model. You can't live in that way. And also, you know, have nine kids in your shuttle house. <laughs> you don't live, can or cannot. Cannot in that model. The idea is that you can, you can have the consciousness of the divine before you always. Right. And yet it's not, even then the conception of it is like quickly coming back, coming back, coming back. So you're in the mortgage and then you shift back and it can be as quick as that gesture. Right. But it's like that. Yeah. Well, this is uh, probably one of our favorite little Dharma bundles is the absolute and relative truth. Right. And, and then for those who follow that perspective, there's a third truth, which is the inseparability of absolute and relative truth is a third truth, which to me, that is a very interesting perspective. Now, you just said you're shifting from one perspective to the other. So that's not a blended reality at that point. Is that, that your understanding? That's correctly? the way that's that model. And I think what's happened in my life is that I was really interested when I wrote that book, Everything is God, there's like a big chart in there between the relative and the absolute and the non-duality of the relative and the absolute. And I found in practice, I was full of shit. <laughs> That's a good chapter title. Yeah. In practice, it, I was full you of know, shit. in theory, yes. Yeah. Right. I yeah. was in, I was in the view, you know, and, and, you know, it was the tantric unification of relative and absolute. And, you know, it was the wetness of the waves and every every wave is wet and all of those things. <laughs> and in practice, I was full of shit. You know, I, I, I was immersing in things that you know, I, I just was experiencing suffering as suffering, not experiencing it as both suffering and also the the, the wetness of the wave. So... I'm not like, I don't disagree, like, you know, but it's like, as, as I operationalized it in my life, which sounds more conscious than it was, like it, it didn't. And I kept thinking, I kept like reinforcing that, yeah, like I, I was really nourished by that perspective. And like I said, it's in the book, like I was, I was all about it. And, um, so I was like, well, this too is God. This too is God. This too is, and then I like just realized, like I, I was falling too much into that space of, of, you know, it's where the guy in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance finds himself, right? Where he has that breakdown. Like everything is quality, right? So you can just sit in your own shit and vomit and, you know, whatever and never bathe because everything is quality, right? That's his word for the, the you know, and I wasn't in that extreme situation, but I was in a situation where I wasn't doing the relative world things that could be helpful, um, for shifting the mind state on a relative level. And so I started getting more interested in these more oscillating models of awakening. And that correlates too with, uh, it's interesting, you know, Abhidharma, the, the, the actual, you know, clinical analysis of how the mind actually works in, in time. You know, the idea being that there's about 120 frame, mental frames per second <laughs> and 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 that it is digital. The mind experiences digital rather than analog, rather than flowing through. And so it, it would be a very quick flickering of uh, different experiences, uh, and maybe also noticing uh, 
the fact that they're not continuous is another for aspect of the experience. It's actually experiencing the discontinuity of it right. uh, as non-conceptual kind of flicker. So it doesn't it come down at some point to experience the realm of experience of like being, and maybe the psychedelics are interesting there, of being put in, into a perspective in which you can't apply your ordinary perspective perspective doesn't work in wherever you are. Yeah. Great minds think alike. I was just about to make a similar point. I think, you know, as practice, as my own practice life evolved in parallel with all the rest of my life that we haven't talked about, which is fine. Uh, you know, that's one reason I got really interested in jhana. Um, so jhanas for folks who don't know are these meditative absorptions that could be cultivated and they're extremely wonderful bliss states. And I feel like stating my credibility to talk about bliss states, like I've had a lot of really great bliss states. It's been a great role. You know, I talked about my being a, being a gay man in my thirties. There's a lot of bliss states. I've been, you know, I've had a lot of them and including also meditation bliss states and, and states that are quite profound, uh, extreme, you know, concentration and real unit of experiences and things like that. The jhanas, you know, are maybe take the cake as far as experience, um, such that you start getting less attached to experiences because they're so, uh, you know, it, it takes so much cake that you're kind of like, well, okay, this is, this is another experience. And that's like the most profound experience you've had in your life. And I found those helpful Again, partly because I'm an Enneagram 7 and indulgent, but more seriously because there is like the touching into those states of mind. The, the mind learns those those ways of experiencing and such that it becomes possible to touch into them uh, often. Um, and that from a sort of purely, I would say, tantric point of view, unifying relative and absolute, it seem, it, can, it can seem like maybe a waste of time. Like, why are you just having more relative experiences? That's, that's silly. But again, in my actual life, having those relative experiences enables me to touch into the absolute in the midst of daily life. And that's especially true with, with I would call it the kind of dharmic use of psychedelics. So obviously the experience itself, especially if it's a long experience, um, has its own teaching. And also you know, it's possible to train the mind to remember. Now, I won't say, want to say with a capital R, but like, you know, to really remember uh, because of the kind of power of those experiences. And, you know, so for me, I mean, one of the medicines that's not as well known as the, the toad medicine, 5-MeO-DMT, and the experience on that in particular is completely uh, immersive, completely dissociative and complete ego death. You, and it really is extremely profound. It's hard to describe it. In fact, it's impossible to describe it. And after doing it enough, it's possible to kind of remember little echoes or shadows of it. And that um, is a big part of my practice, uh, you know, because I do have a five-year-old child <laughs> who I did raise through the pandemic. And, you know, it's not possible. I haven't gone on a, on a more than a two-day meditation retreat in, in six years. Mm. And I used to go on retreats all the time. I did it, you know, three month retreats, two month retreats. And, you know, that's not, that's just not going to happen uh, right now, given my, what I perceive as my commitments uh, to my family. And so having these other ways of connecting in short bits to that kind mm -hmm. of peak experience has been enormously valuable for me. I wonder what the toad experience is like. We're, are they? We don't they really lick the toad. <laughs> this medicine no, is. I, yeah, the toad turns into a prince. No, yeah. And you get high. No, but seriously, <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, you um, do not. Does, does the not. toad have any um, impact from what it's carrying in itself? 
Apparently not. Uh, it's actually so most 5-MeDMT is now synthesized. Uh, it oh, occurs naturally mm. in a, uh, a kind of in a grass, actually, a sort of tall grass, and it's extracted from that and processed. So not quite synthesized. It's coming from a natural source, but not from the toad. Um, so yeah, no, the it's actually a toad venom. Uh, that uh, the toad does not itself experience. No, it's funny because it's a really ordinary frog. I mean, it's a toad. I know frogs and toads are different. It's a toad. It's just this Sonoran toad that is not very common. It's actually now slightly endangered, uh, partly because of all these white people going down there and licking its back all the time. Um, so it's better to use the the plant-based version. Um, and uh, that, Let's face it, white people are really nuts. Can we just say well, that on the air? That I would just say, say we're used to a certain level of entitlement that causes us to mess up other places. <laughs> Lick and, uh, codes, you know, I mean, really. Well, it, it does. There is some record. It's actually interesting, unlike, let's say, ayahuasca, where there's a very rich indigenous uh, tradition, there's not nearly as much. Uh, or information, at least at least that we know of, there you know now there are indigenous groups in, in the Sonoran in the area of the Sonoran Desert uh, who do use this medicine, but uh, it's not it's a it's a curious fact that there's just not as rich uh, a tradition uh, as there's you know with ayahuasca there's tons of art there's tons, there's just a, a lot that goes back at yeah, least hundreds it's a of culture. years. It's a bit of yeah. a culture, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a it's a weird fact about this that uh, it's not not nearly as well, it may be there and it may just be secret and yeah. we white people may not know about it. I don't know. So when you, when you mentioned uh, Dan wanting to meet the 100% folks, I mean, you know, our, our lineage springs forth from the Mahasiddhas. That's really, you trace it right back to that kind of um, yogic freelance, uh, you know. Then it cooked up with the monastic tradition quite a bit later on uh, and got carried through the monastic tradition. But don't you think there are Mahasiddhas around these days? Do you think there are those such, such yeah, people I don't who are know. really highly, to, highly realized, accomplished people, but yeah, maybe you don't know? There clearly are. You know, I've, no. I've been in the presence of a few over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, it's, it's, I think it does depend a little bit on the definition again. You know, if, if it's about, if it's that tantric definition, meaning both absolute and relative held at the same time and recognized two sides of the same inexplicable reality. Yeah, there's a lot of those folks. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that it depends like on, so there's a, there's a Theravadan guy uh, by the name of Daniel Ingram. He's an American guy who goes, who claims to be an Arhant, but his definition of the Arhants is different from the traditional ones. It's like, well, it doesn't necessarily impact your ethical conduct the way that the texts say, uh, and you can still have X or Y or Z. Well, that's fine. That's just a diff different definition of realized or enlightened. Um, you know, I mean, Ramesh Balsakar seems to have been very realized and enlightened, but had some very questionable interact romantic entanglements with some of his students. Mm -hmm. was, he was he realized, but also unethical? You know, according to some models, those can coexist, right? Um, and so it's, that's why I think it's like a definitional thing. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've rarely met people who it seemed to me are incapable of ethical wrong action. Uh, I won't say never, but that to me seems harder than meeting people who have had profound and enduring experiences such that their consciousness is forever awake. Yeah. You know, uh, just on this topic, one of the people who comes to my mind is Dilko Kensei Rinpoche, mm -hmm. who was, uh, you know, had the opportunity to spend considerable time there. And as far as I'm concerned, as far as I could my capability of perceiving it inseparable from whatever you would 
want to talk about it in terms of realization or Buddhahood or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, completely like um, Bank of England level of uh, you know <laughs> stability and kind of kindness and and uh, uh, you know multi-dimensionality. Uh, <clears throat> But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting to see this. To be as old as I am, first of all, is interesting. Anyhow, period. <laughs> Seventy-five is just like, yeah, that did. It all happened already, right? And now it's, is it going to happen again, or is this going to be something new? Mm. So I wonder, you know, what we're all doing now. It feels, and that's why coming back to Dharma Moon, the geodesic dome is was was what I arrived at for this sort of, uh, rather than the pyramid or or the ladder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it there. Things are, with you know, and maybe it's being a little bit of a Taoist, but things organize themselves into spherical situations in which the hierarchy can move around sometimes by the implication that wisdom is manifesting in a particular situation, therefore spontaneously communicating with the situation that's less, less processed. So, you know, that idea that you wouldn't have as much linear or, orientation going into it. You'd have to enter a world of spheres, circles, uh, things, things that are not, uh, linear uh, to to really relate to it. Does that make any sense at all? That was a little bit of a jam, but no, I get it. I'm just thinking of mm-hmm. nonprofit meetings that I have attended that last for three hours because consensus is required, and it just makes me yeah. Miserable. But I'm not ta- that's a, that's a flat circle. I see. That's not a dome. Yeah, that, that's the difference. Is that cert- in in whatever situation that is, somebody should rise to the top of that and have a higher perspective, an organizational perspective, which is the nonprofit is kind of to me a flattened out uh, perspective of, uh, you know, enforced democracy. Uh, you, you don't recognize uh, brilliance in it necessarily. Would you say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, again, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I'm an INTJ. In fact, if we switch from Enneagram to Myers-Briggs and, uh, so I'm aware of my own limitations, uh, in, in this regard. I wonder uh, what I am. I have, I have, well, you know, Susan Piper is an Enneagram, uh, per, yeah, yeah, Greek, yeah. you know, and I forgot even what number she said I am. I, I, I it's so hard for me to think that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love what I love about the Enneagram. Susan takes it a little more mystically than I do, actually. And mm -hmm, we've had mm -hmm. lovely conversations, the two of us, about about it. But for me, I just, I like it. I like that it's like the horoscope based on data (laughs) as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, something that, and, and I like that it's just data driven. You know, you take, you can take a 200 question quiz or something and, and really get in there. And, and I have found it very, I found it useful in relationship. I'm married to Mm -hmm. a nine. That's really good to understand. And, And the nine is like the peacemaker. Who, who's really good at getting along with people. Sevens are not, very, I'm not very good at getting along, but he really is. But there's pitfalls to that too, right? And 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 I found it useful. I just I just find it useful. And uh, Is there anything like the amp and spinal tap that goes up to 11? <laughs> Actually, somebody did just make that joke. It was funny, like, I just read something like, I don't, oh, the Enneagram, that goes to nine. I'm probably an 11. So that's a nice <laughs> synchronicity that that happened. Um, but I, yeah. I do find it, I find it also helpful you know, one of the, it, I haven't really seen this connection made a lot, but the way we now think about neurodiversity uh, for mm. me ties in with the Enneagram that there are different, just a lot of different talents uh, mm. and people who might've been stigmatized for not having certain abilities, but yeah. may well have very, have other abilities that are incredibly valuable, not just like autistic savants or something like that, but just people with different, different attributes and different things to contribute. I like that sort of Speaking of round, you know the the nine types are usually put in a circle. I, I like that model that all of the all of these different personalities and personality types can really be of value to the individual and the group. And so it's a matter of understanding them more. That for me is really 
I find I find true and also really helpful. And what about a, the, what about intuitive? Uh, is you're a seven? Did you say? Yeah, yeah. The seven is like the sensualist or the uh, the hedonist or whatever. But it's not only on the sens- on the physical sensual level. Like it's also like you know people who like Jana tend to be a lot of sevens, right? Because it's like about I experience. You're, you're looking you're looking for experiences, right? Whereas let's say a one might be a little bit more about order, religion, ethics, you know, things like that. I mean, obviously, as we've talked about, I'm interested in ethics, but you know, less. My, I think my daughter might be turning into a one, which is a little scary to watch because they tend to the ones on the shadow side are like the fascists, right? These are the people who want a oh, lot of know. order. But the one on the healthy side uh, is also just someone who's who's really good at order or creating spaces of order and having things, you know, together and and, and having groups get along well, uh, you know, and organized in such a way, even your model with like the dome and not a pyramid, you know, just that way of thinking, which I don't really have, uh, can be associated with that personality. All of these have healthy and unhealthy manifestations, right? The unhealthy seven is right. like, you know, you, you, your friends from the music industry who, who died, right? And, you know, yeah. who didn't have, yeah. the, who, who burned out or whatever. Uh, but it's, but the healthy versions are the, your friends of the music industry who have lived and who are now, you know, 80 and playing rock stadiums. Yeah. I mean, Joni Mitchell comes to mind as like, right. she's been stunning lately. Yeah. She's probably a three or four, but yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> she's but, more of a but, poet. Yeah. But so I guess, I guess at the end of the day, uh, do you, what role does not knowing kind of play in how you schedule your day? Hmm. I would say it's pretty bounded in terms of how I schedule my day. Um, because I'm actually really, I'm actually pretty organized in a lot of ways and I thrive from that. I mean, it does factor in, in, in the bounded way, you know, you never know where the moment of beauty is going to come from. I was just driving, I have a little motorcycle. I was driving here in town and, you know, it's fall season here in, in uh, the Northeastern United States and beautiful leaves and just a moment of just clarity. No, no big insight to report, just that, just the moment right. itself, you know, and uh, right. the mind awake, radiant, the beautiful, you know, beautiful scenery and just that conditions a certain quality of the mind, you know, so being open to that spontane- spontaneity, yeah. Um, and not knowing when that's going to arise. Also, you know, again, we're right. I'm, I'm in this news cycle and it's a grief process. And with grief processes, you know, my experience, I think ever, almost everyone says, you don't know what the day is going to be. Mm. Yesterday, I had a lot of anger for no reason I could really identify other than mm. that I'm in this grief process. And I wasn't angry at any particular thing right. or person. What do you got? I'll be angry at it. You know, like, mm. uh, is that is that Brando, right? What are you rebelling against? He says, what do you got? Is that him or James Dean? Maybe James I, Dean. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, come on, I'm giving you Boomer references. You're supposed to, that's like <laughs> Okay, the, Boomer. That's what Ethan says. Okay, I didn't say, Boomer. I didn't know. I didn't say okay. I didn't meet the person who invented that phrase. Um, so, yeah, I think there's that openness. But at the same time, for me, you know, I've got my New York Insight work here. I've got the new book that I'm failing to promote on this podcast over here. You know, I've got the the side hustle there. So it's, it's and, and the journalism work, uh, which I'm doing very intensively right now because of the news cycle. So it, okay, it, Jay, 
Let's not fail to promote your new book. I always fail to promote. No, no, this is well. You know what? We didn't talk about. We talked about spirituality a little, a lot. We did a little bit making a book, but creativity. You know, so for me, I have. So this book is called "The Secret That Is Not a Secret: Ten Heretical Mm -hmm. Tales." It's interlocking short stories uh, on themes of mysticism, desire, and magic. And I, like a lot of nonfiction writers, you know, I sort of have always felt regarded myself as a failed novelist or a failed fiction writer. I have written two unpublished novels. I don't think either will ever really see the light of day. But uh, these stories, uh, the original version of them, you know, is go back 15 years. Um, but uh, they weren't really ripe in a certain way. They're, they're, you know, I wrote them, it was, my, it was actually a very early version. It was my MFA thesis at Sarah Lawrence because I have an MFA in, in fiction writing. And, um, but I've always been really proud of them. And now, so they've been completely rewritten. Some have been taken out, new ones put in, some just completely you know, top to bottom redone. And it really encapsulates where I'm at uh, creatively, creatively and spiritually in a way of nothing else uh, that I've done. And um, so I'm super excited about it. It's with an ind- independent press called Ayn, A-Y-I-N Press. Probably not going to sell a gajillion copies, but as a... S- uh, 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 uh. Don't say that. It's going to sell a jillion copies. I'm going to manifest <laughs> you, the... You, you uh, the, do not want to miss out on this book, friends. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, what okay. I was going to say is, however many copies it sells, I think it will really resonate with with some people. Yeah. And that's that's the kind of relationship that I, I'm looking at now, wanting for for these yeah. books to have with readers. Um, and can you say the name again for, for The everybody? Secret That Is Not a Secret. Ooh. Which we were talking, I can, you'll, you're one of the few people you're going to get it immediately, right? Because we were just talking about the unification of relative and absolute. So yeah. it's the secret, but yeah. it's actually not a secret. Is it out? Uh, it is, uh, publication date is December 5th, 2023. Okay, perfect. And uh, available in all the usual ways? Available in all the usual places. If you want the hyper-capitalist place, they have it. If you want and, the and alternative what about place, audio? Did you they, read it? Yeah, we'll have an audiobook, which I am recording uh, in two weeks from this moment. Uh, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to go into the studio, record it myself. Um, as, I was going to beseech you to do that if you weren't going to do that. Oh, thanks for the beseechment. <laughs> yeah, beseeching, because uh, books writ, writ, read by other people, I just, uh, it's, it's not a happening thing, at least as far as I'm concerned. But by the author, if the author takes the time and care, it's another way of getting into the author's. Being, well, I, uh, I told you, but I haven't told, you know, listeners that your, your non-audiobook audiobook of Midnight Gospel, you know, changed my life in the pandemic. So that was like my favorite. <laughs> uh, that, that was the only, that, the, that TV show was the only show that I felt accurately represented the reality of March 2020. <laughs> and for folks who haven't seen it, of course, it's a dystopian animated high level of gore fantasy. Uh, and that seemed like a good mirror on the world at the time. It's the only thing Duncan. I could watch. I couldn't watch that's anything our, else. Our wonderful friend Duncan Trussell, who yeah. put that together. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got a unique uh, perspective, you know, these days. I, I, I find he's one of my go-tos for like, what's going on? You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I have other people I call for the what, what I call the what the fuck call, like what the fuck you know is going on here because right. it's just like incomprehensible. Right. But there's something going on in a shaping of. Um, I heard a great phrase uh, from a friend, like you know what a midlife crisis is. Yeah, this is. A, have you heard this one? A quarterly crisis. I have heard that, but well, so do you get one of those now? Are you in no, a quarter? T- no, I'm three. I'm probably 
seven eighths. But I thought you got three uh, quarters. No, we're good. With, um, you know, you'll, you get to live to a hundred. That's the point. Well, we'll see about that. But the quarterly one is like at twenty five. Uh-huh. The midlife yeah. is like fifty. Yeah, and yeah. it's a crisis of who am I? What is it going to be? Yeah. How are we yeah. going to do it? And we have a lot of people like that in our ecosystem, which I love because that's a great time of life. It's funny that you mentioned that because one of those two unpublished novels is exactly about that. Um, you know, 18 careers ago, I was in the first dot-com boom. Uh, I, I did start a startup in 2000 and was kind of front row seat to the crazy circus of that period. And um, sometimes literally a circus, like circus performers at uh, <laughs> at conventions and stuff like that. And uh, the novel was set or, yeah, at that time. And it was exactly like it felt to me like a period, you know, there are plenty of adolescent novels, right. And plenty of coming of age novels, but this felt like the, this period, this passage that wasn't captured a lot since then. I mean, I wrote that a million years ago. I think there've been a lot of good entries in that field, but, uh, I agree. Yeah, no, there is that. Um, and it's, it's, it's so, there really is a generational shift. And I think I'm on your side of the shift at this point, you know, when I was 22, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I could really write my ticket. I mean, I was mm-hmm. very privileged, right? I graduated from Columbia. You know, I decided to go to law school, but, you know, people were exiting, going right from undergraduate to these, you know, fancy management consulting things. And this was the 90s. So we were concerned. We were like, those sellouts, they suck, right? Because they're yeah. sellouts. Because right. we had the the sort of economic security to not be sellouts, right? Mm. And it really is different for Gen Z now. And uh, mm. when you look at the degree of, the lower degree of economic opportunity, sure. the higher possibility of serious climate catastrophe in, in their lifetime. And, you know, it, it's it's very fashionable for some boomers, but I'll just say for Gen X to be like, oh, you, you know, delicate this or that or the other, but right. millennials, but certainly Gen Z are very, seem proportionally seem very aware of how screwed over uh, they, they are, you know, millennials having gone through 9-11, 2008, COVID, you know, and who knows what the current moment might lead to. Um, right. And Gen Z looking at a, at a, you know, I feel like a 25-year-old person today faces a, such a different world from mm. the world that I faced. Also, of course, the internet. You know, I was 25. The internet had just come out in, in wider usage. I remember getting my first email address. I was 24. Um, and uh, I told my um, mother, by the way, to uh, invest in Amazon while at the IPO. And she said she likes buying books in a bookstore. So she didn't, she didn't buy any of that stock. Uh, so, wow. you know, it's, it's such a different time uh, that it, it feels like if I ever go back to that book, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's set in its time. And it's almost a, a, like a time capsule from that totally different period. Well, going forward on your book, I think you should think, could it be adapted to any kind of um, multimedia, you know, vid- video or uh, television or film or something like that? Have you yeah, no, that? I think, I mean, it is, it's, it's these connected short stories. Uh, we're looking at, at various kinds of visual media. Um, you know, the press is, it's fun being at an indie press because, you know, they're small, but super creative and, and right. energized. And um, I did just, I, you know, but look, I, I have a lot, like I have a screenplay that was just getting shopped around that I'm super excited mm-hmm. about. Um, and I think actually it was my, one of my publishers at the, uh, at this press, an artist named Eden Perlstein, who used to be a rapper under the name E Prime, uh, so he still rhymes everything. He called my life Operation Bifurcation, uh, which was to say there was like you know that the, this creative work, 
I, I hear what you, I, I appreciate the positive thinking around the short story collection. I'm also mindful of the usual sales of short story collections, you know, but it, it feels really connected for me. Like I'm, I'm not just saying it to try to sell the book. Obviously it's just like, it really does. This is my Torah. This is my Dharma. You know, it's queer and it's sensual and it's heretical and it's juicy and it's all these different characters and that gets me going. And I am really proud of it. And, you know, yeah, like whether it was the financial side hustle or some of the other work that I'm doing to make that sustainable, you know, that's, that's, that also feels, it's, feels connected. It's, it's in the service of having the space to do that, uh, creative work. And I remember too, like it used to be, we used to be, you know, we used to hide our side hustles 25 years ago, but nowadays with the economy, the way it is, it's like, you know, we're not Airbnb in our house. Uh, but, uh, you know, I will help you know, nonprofits get a tax credit, uh, because that's yeah. in the service of living. I'm still stuck with seize the day, you know, it's living in a, in a way that feels authentic and heartful and hopefully helpful. Well, Jay, on that note, um, first of all, I just want to say it was so, um, lovely to get to know you a little bit. And, um, the, the explosion of creativity coming out of you is just kind of, um, apparent, uh, ordinary and dramatic all at the same time. And, uh, you know, I think people will be fortunate to come in, in contact with you and get a chance to enter any one of those portals in, the, in your geodesic dome that, that, uh, that, you know, enables them to ripen. The Dharma piece is interesting. You know, I like to talk Dharma. You know, it's kind of, an, it gets a little nerdy for maybe some people, but for me, it's bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think of these conversations as anyway separate from the rest of whatever is going on. So I just want to thank you for joining us and taking the time out of your your, your uh, life to 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 spend time with creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Uh, and you know, hope that we get a chance to hang out sometime and just uh, you know have ordinary time to um, to connect. I'd love that. All right, thank yeah, thank you so much. Really been a treat. Okay, thank you. There you have it, folks. Episode number 48 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book podcast on the Be Here Now Network with our guest, Jay Michelson. We would like to thank Jay for taking his time and joining us and sharing his wisdom and experience in conversation with David. We would like to thank all of you for listening and again, encourage you all to pick up a copy of his forthcoming book, Again, we'd like to thank Be Here Now Network for hosting and distributing this podcast. We encourage everyone to head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com and listen to all the amazing podcasts there. And also, if you like this podcast, we encourage you to, you know, give us a positive review, share on social media, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps us out. And um, please head over to DharmaMoon.com. So that's it for the end today. Thank you for listening. Uh, We sincerely hope this podcast is a benefit to you and your life. And in closing, may you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely? unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, 
change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.